This is Pastor Clint Ribble, and you're listening to the Grace Point Church Podcast. For more information, please visit gracepoint.net. Well, I want to uh, continue today my response to our visit with Phyllis Tickle two weeks ago. And to begin this, I want to just um, read a little something, and then I want to kind of end, or rather begin where we left off last week, and then I want to throw it open for some questions and some comments and a bit of conversation amongst us this morning. Had some great questions and comments in the first service, and I expect no less of you, right? So y'all are going to be smarter, or at least as smart as the first service, okay? It's going to be good. Y'all are going to be awake, you're going to be froggy, and Jerry, you're going to ask a question, all right? So wake up over there. This is going to be good. Reading from N.T. Wright, uh, one of my... uh, one of the theologians that I really enjoy these days, N.T. Wright is an Anglican who really speaks to, I think, all the communities of faith, Catholic, Orthodox, and Protestant. And a lot of evangelicals really like Wright as well. Wright, in a, an article that you can find online called How to Find Authority Within Scripture, uh, reconciling the idea of biblical authority um, within the church, This is his conclusion. Let me just read a little bit, and then I'll take off from here. Wright says, I've argued that the notion of the authority of Scripture is a shorthand expression for God's authority, expressed somehow through Scripture. I've argued that Scripture must be allowed to be itself in exercising its authority. Scripture must not be turned into something else which might fit better into what the church or even the world might have thought its authority should look like. I've argued that Scripture is therefore, or rather, it is therefore the meaning of authority itself, not that of Scripture that is the unknown in the equation. The real question is, what does authority mean? And that when this unknown is discovered, it challenges head-on the various notions and practices of authority endemic in the world and, alas, in the church also. Wright points out in another place that when we think of authority from a a secular perspective, we think of a drill sergeant coming into the room saying, do this. And yet when we approach Scripture, Scripture doesn't have a do this attitude or demeanor. Scripture, rather, sits down and says once upon a time and invites you into a narrative, into a story. So in in what way can a narrative, can a historical narrative and a story um, be reconciled to our idea of authority? I've suggested less systematically some ways in which this might be put into practice. All of this has been designed as a plea to the church to let the Bible be the Bible, and so to let God be God And so as to enable the people of God to be the people of God, his special people living under his authority, bringing his light to his world. The Bible is not an end in itself. It is there so that by its proper use, the creator may be glorified and the creation may be healed. It is our task to be the people through whom this extraordinary vision comes to pass. We are thus entrusted with a privilege too great for casual handling too vital to remain a mere matter of debate. So what am I saying? I'm saying that we mustn't belittle Scripture by bringing the world's models of authority into it. We must let Scripture be itself, and that is a hard task. Scripture contains many things that I don't know. This is from a brilliant theologian. 
Scripture contains many things that I don't know and that you don't know, many things we are waiting to discover, passages which are lying dormant waiting for us to dig them out, and church history certainly declares that truth. Scripture is awaiting. It is awaiting for us, for the Spirit to enliven and awaken these ideas. We must then make sure that the church, armed in this way, is challenging the world's view of authority so that we must determine corporately as well as individually to become, in a true sense, people of this book. Not people of the book in the extreme Islamic sense, where this book just drops down and crushes people and says it's the will of Allah. I don't think you have to look to Islam for that model. And I don't understand it, and I can't do anything about it, but we must obey it. No, this is not the sense to which we are called to be people of the book. People of the book in the Christian sense, people who are being remade, judged, and remolded by the Spirit through Scripture is far more humble than this. It seems to me that evangelical tradition has often become in bondage to a sort of lip service Scripture principle, even while debating, in fact, how many angels can dance on the head of a pen Instead, I suggest that our task is to see, seize this privilege of being the people of God, the people of a book, to seize it with both hands and use it to the glory of God and the redemption of the world. Phyllis begged the question in our service two weeks ago, you guys can't see the board, can you? Can you kind of? Oh, you don't see it on the screen. I forgot. Clint's going to put it up on screen. Phyllis begged the question, and I'll start at the base of the canvas today. She asked the question, wherein lies authority? How now shall we live? Wherein lies authority? And how are these important seminal questions of life to be answered? Well, we made the pretty quick conclusion last week, and I think most people in a religious sense would agree with this, that when we ask the question of wherein lies authority, most of us would agree, I think all of us would agree in a theistic sense, that authority lies in God. But we can't just leave the idea there. What does it mean that God is authoritative? By saying that God is authoritative in our life. I mean, you wouldn't be here this morning unless it's some familial reason of satisfying a spouse or your kids. Most of us are here because to some degree we believe that God, God is authoritative in our life. God invites us into a way of being in the world, which is to say that God has ideas. God has thoughts. We are mindful of the fact that God has a mind about the way life should be lived. We are mindful of the fact that God has thoughts about the decisions we should make and uh, the way that we would live our life. Uh, that presupposes something that is endemic to Christianity, and that is that we believe in an involved God. We are not deists. We don't believe God wound the thing up like an eight-day clock and backed off and is just letting it play out. We, most of us, to varying degrees and in different ways we would describe this, we believe that God, divinity, is involved in the process of our life. And to the degree that God is involved, God wants to express God's ideas and thoughts to us. Now, the question then begs, how do we ascertain the ideas and thoughts of God? That's the million-dollar question, isn't it? We believe that God's involved. We believe God has ideas. Then how do we ascertain what those ideas and thoughts are? Well, if you look to the story, the once upon a time of the Judeo-Christian people, uh, 
Our once upon a time does not begin with Scripture. Our once upon a time, which is found in the annals of Scripture, tells us that God was indeed involved, and from the very beginning, God was involved by a mechanism that we refer to now as, it's kind of a fancy term and scary for some people, especially the last word, but direct revelation. Anybody remember from the beginning, God created Adam and Eve, and he sent a preacher to talk to them, right? God created Adam and Eve, and he sent down a book, floated down on angels' wings, and he gave them a book to read, devotionally. Adam and Eve were doing devotionals every morning. Naked as Jay Bird's doing devotionals, right? No. God walked with them in the cool of the day, right? And when you follow that line in Scripture, God spoke with Adam and Eve directly. There was no mediator between God and Adam and Eve, correct? And then you go further into the Scripture, and you have a guy named Enoch who walked with God, and God took him direct involvement. Then you got a guy by the name of Noah, and God sends him a letter. God sends him an epistle. God sends him an apostle or a prophet. No. God comes down and talks to him directly. This is spooky for some people, but it's the narrative of our story. We believe from the beginning. It's embedded. It's imbued in our text, our story, that God directly revealed himself to human beings. And then past Noah, telling him to build a boat, even the, the architecture, the the specifics of how to build the boat. Then God taps one of his descendants by the name of Abraham. He doesn't send a mediator. God goes directly to Abraham and says, I want you to be my man. I'm going to call you out and I'm going to make you a people. And the story of Abraham is all about direct involvement with God. The story of Abraham's children, Isaac and Jacob, direct involvement with God. We even name our churches Bethel and Penuel. We have these different names from the life of Jacob. These places for Jacob experienced God directly. You remember the ladder on which the angels were ascending and descending? You remember Bethel where he wrestled with God all night long and God changed his name from Jacob to Israel? Our story, read through the book of Genesis. That seminal narrative is about direct revelation. And then the Bible tells us that Jacob's descendants, Isaac, Abraham's descendants, fell into such spiritual, social disarray that they ended up losing the promised land and they went down to a land called Egypt where they were enslaved. And after many years, four centuries, the story goes, they were enslaved there. They had so lost a sense of their spiritual, sociological identity that God essentially said, I can't do this anymore. I cannot communicate with this people so God did something that he had not done heretofore. God chose a mediator, and the mediator's name was Moses. God spoke to a man by the name of Moses, and God called him. Read Exodus 7. God called him a prophet. And the idea of the prophetic, the prophetic office is born. Direct revelation is not undone, but now direct revelation is the privilege of the elite few. The privilege of Moses. Even Moses didn't want uh, to be a, a prophet. Moses didn't mind the direct revelation so much. He just didn't want to be the people, responsible for the people. Moses said, I can't talk. I stutter. I don't have a message. I'm not good in front of crowds. And God said, you're still my man. You're going to be my prophet, and I'll give you your brother Aaron to be your spokesperson. Both of you together will be prophets. And from that time in the course of Scripture, this thing called the prophetic office unveils. And God communicates to people through people. The prophetic tradition continues to unfold in the line of Scripture. There are about 55 people in what we call the Old Testament who were deemed prophets. Seven of them were women. 
55 people, seven women in that patriarchal age that were deemed by God to be mouthpieces. And they spoke, many of them spoke uh, with, with such candor and such rigor that the people were affronted, but they would often soften that and grease that with a beautiful vision of what was to come if the people would indeed respond. Ultimately, the Bible teaches us that the prophetic office, our scripture teaches us that the prophetic office found its fulfillment in the greatest of all of Israel's prophets. Anybody dare to venture a guess who was called by scripture the greatest of all of Israel's prophets? You actually find him in what we call the New Testament. And Jesus is the one that referred to him as the ultimate fulfillment of the prophetic office, the uber prophet, Jesus said, the greatest of all the prophets, and his name was John, John the Baptist. John the Baptist was the prophet, the mediator that was speaking for God. He was telling the people to bring the low spots up and the high spots down and to repent for the kingdom of God was at hand. And the Bible tells us that then John made his greatest prophetic move as one day down by the Jordan River baptizing, he saw his cousin Jesus walking up and John the Baptist, not only for himself, but for the prophetic office itself, John the Baptist and the prophetic office stepped back, being willingly supplanted by Jesus. And John said, I'm not worthy to reach down and untie his shoes. And I am deferring now my kingdom and the kingdom of the prophets completely into the life of this man I've baptized you with water. They've baptized you with a message, but he's going to baptize you directly with the Spirit of God. To some degree, John said, Jesus is going to be my great replacement, and Jesus is going to take us back to what Paul described later to the Galatians as no need for a mediator. Jesus is going to baptize you. John said, if I could summarize Jesus, he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God. Joel prophesied, one of the prophets, and said, on that day, the day when Jesus' message is fulfilled, all flesh will be poured out upon by the Spirit of God. So there's going to be this return to a direct engagement with God, and it's going to come through the person of Jesus Christ. You even see some developmental theology in Scripture. Some would call it contradictory language. I think it's developmental ideas, even in the course of Scripture, which is a beautiful thing, because Paul said that there's one mediator between God and man, Paul told the church, and that is the man, Christ Jesus. Did you hear that? There's a mediator between God and man, and that's the man, Christ Jesus. But the longer into Paul's writings you go, the more you see Paul clearly developing the idea that this man, Christ Jesus, was not only a man, but he was also God. So if you have a person named Jesus who is God and man serving as the mediator between God and man, that mediation is somehow forged in the union of one life. And again, Paul began to return to the idea that there's no need for a mediator in Jesus. If we are in Jesus and Jesus is in the Father and we are in the Father and the Father's in us, there is this great oneness of direct contact with God. So much so that Jesus himself described his ministry as the giving of the Spirit. You remember, and we've talked about this many times, as Jesus lived on this earth, his people become so Christologically, so enamored by the idea of God, Messiah, coming in flesh, that they wrap their fingers into him, and yet Jesus said, I must go away. And he described very clearly that his going away 
was going to be good for them because the replacement was going to be better than even God in flesh. The replacement was going to be the promised Holy Spirit. And now the promise would be that no longer would God simply manifest himself and dwell in one human being, but through the Holy Spirit that would be given by Jesus, the presence, the abiding presence of God, the abiding presence of Jesus, the Holy Ghost, the spirit of departed being, the spirit of the one died and resurrected. Through that spirit, we would now, Paul said, have direct contact with God. If so be, Paul said, that the spirit that raised Jesus from the dead dwell in you, <laughs> then you are indeed the body of Christ. And there is this movement that comes full circle back to this body of Christ, back to this people who are baptized and filled with the Spirit of God and are given access or direct contact to God. Phyllis was asked the question the other day, and I appreciated the fact that she didn't have all of the answers, but some, somebody asked her the question, what is this move of Christianity that you're calling the age of the Spirit? What does it look like practically for us? And I, I want to seek to answer that to some degree, and I can't answer it fully, and she didn't even attempt to answer it, but I think, I think there, uh, there are some places that we can go here. Let me see if I can get a, a better marker. How about red? I remember in the little holiness movement that I grew up in, some people didn't wear bright red because they said it, well, as one of my preacher friends said, a woman came up to him and said, brother, I'm kind of dismayed that you've got that bright red tie on. He said, why? She said, well, when I think of you know, bright red like that, lipstick and all that, I think of prostitutes. He said, well, I think of the blood of Jesus. I guess it might matters where your mind is at the time. But <laughs> So to the issue of authority, the church has believed that Jesus came as the expression of God's ideas, right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word was made flesh. So Jesus was the expression of God's ideas and thoughts. In the first hundred years of the Christian church, the church wrestled hard with how do we know that we have captured effectively the life of Jesus? And the church came to a conclusion quite early that we know we have what I would refer to as essential Jesus. If Jesus is essentially God, essence, essential, then how do we know we have essential Jesus? Does anybody um, want to venture an educated guess within the first hundred years of the Christian church? How did we believe that we had captured the essential life and message of Jesus? Anybody? It's not a trick question. Thank you, Brian. The church made the decision per the story that we held in oral tradition first that it was the 12 apostles who had captured essentially the life and the message of Jesus. The church came to that conclusion. They so believed that that in the earliest days of the church, Northern Africa, Palestine, Asia Minor, even into Italy and Spain, the only way that a church could be established is if that church was established either by an apostle under the auspices of an apostle. As the apostles died, we were left with a group of men 
called apostolic fathers. I've said before, I wish they were called apostolic sons. It would make more sense. These feel like the fathers. But there was a group of men like Irenaeus and Polycarp and Clement of Rome, a group of people decided by the early church at the end of the first century, the beginning of the second century. This is church history. A group of men who were deemed apostolic fathers for one reason, because we knew they had sat at the feet of the apostles who had sat at the feet of Jesus. These men were given the ability to establish churches. Not only were they given the ability to establish churches, but they were given the ability to ordain. And early on in the Christian church, we ordained men and now women, but early on, men. There is some argument that there were women early on, but that's debatable. We ordained people that we called bishops. The only way in the first two centuries of the church that you could possibly find your way into the leadership of a church and be called a bishop is if you had had your head laid upon by the hands of apostolic fathers who had had their head laid upon by the hands of apostles who had had their feet washed by Jesus. And in this process called apostolic succession, very important, we believed through apostolic succession that we had captured apostolic teaching, which was, we believed, the essential message of Jesus. We had a Bible at this time. Do you remember? We had a Bible. And what was our Bible? In the first 200 years of the Christian church, what was our Bible? It was the Old Testament. Along with the Old Testament, we had the message of Jesus carried through the apostles, apostolic fathers, and bishops, disseminated to the church, and we taught the essential message of Jesus through the Old Testament and what Acts 2 called the teaching of the apostles. The early church met and studied the teaching of the apostles. You say, well, when did we get these 27 books we call the New Testament? Well, that's a good question. We did not begin of our own initiative to say that these books were insufficient. We did not begin of our own initiative during this process of capturing what became known as apostolic teaching. Some of you from Catholic Orthodox backgrounds know this term, rule of faith. We had a rule of faith that was the essential message of Jesus captured through the apostles, but we did not have these 27 books canonized and called the New Testament. But somewhere between 130 and 170, big name in Christian history, there was a smart aleck named Marcion. Marcion was the son of a bishop from Asia Minor, and he was a charismatic guy. He would have been a televangelist today of the greatest uh, sort. Marcion was a brilliant man, too brilliant for his own good, who ultimately left Asia Minor, matriculated to Rome, and though we don't think he ever pastored a church locally, he was one of the most influential people in the middle of the second century in the Christian faith, but influential to a detrimental degree. Because Marcion was so bothered, well, he was so enamored by the message of Jesus that Marcion could not reconcile Jesus to the Old Testament. Now, I know all of you don't have this problem, but is there anybody that can somehow sympathize with Marcion? Have you read the Old Testament lately? And let me just ask you a question. Do you like the Old Testament better or do you like Jesus better? 
You like all those people getting wiped out, you know, planes flying into trade centers at the behest of God and babies floating on the water of a flood? You like all that stuff? Or do you like Jesus better? Marcion took that to a fevered, heretical pitch, and this is what Marcion said. Marcion said, having learned and read this, again, the son of a bishop, a great Christian influencer, Marcion said, I cannot reconcile that God to this God, and so Marcion said, that God is out. Marcion moved from monotheism to polytheism because he said, I'm not saying this God didn't exist. I'm saying this God's a bad guy and he needs ousted. Guess what? There's a new God who's come on the scene. His name isn't Jesus. His name is Father, and he has sent Jesus into the world to defeat the Old Testament God. That was Marcion's idea. You think it sounds crazy. It was holding great sway in the middle of the second century in the Christian church. And it was the greatest threat to the rule of faith that was carried through the apostles and the apostolic fathers and bishops. Now, if Marcion says the Old Testament God is out, guess what else is out? The Old Testament books. Marcion said if Jesus is replacing the Old Testament God, then he also needs a replacement scripture. And Marcion, the heretic, was the first among us to begin saying we need a new Bible. Marcion, a heretic, was the first one to say, our scripture is insufficient. Jesus thought the Old Testament was fine to preach him. Uh, the apostles preached Jesus from the Old Testament, did commentary on the Old Testament. Marcion said, we need a new Bible. Marcion found the gospel that we know as the gospel of Luke, cut it up, made it just like he liked it, took out all of the Old Testament allusions, anything that gave any uh, credence to the Old Testament narrative, and he took that revised Gospel of Luke and he added it to almost a dozen of Paul's writings. He also snipped those up pretty good and took out any allusions to the Old Testament. And Marcion, the heretic, gave us our first New Testament canon. The church responded to that by saying, we don't like what you've done with these texts and we certainly don't like what you've done to our Bible. But the church during this same period began to notice that the memoirs of the apostles, that's what we call them early on. We call them now the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. During this same time, not only they were responding to Marcion, but during this time, the church said we have noticed that we are reading the memoirs of the apostles and the letters of the apostles, Paul, Peter, James, the brother of Jesus, and John, the beloved, the church said, we have noticed that in the church on Sunday morning, we are reading these more than we are reading these, and these are impacting us at least as much as these, if not more. And the church, at the behest of Marcion and just their practical experience, began noticing that there was a lot of writings, a hundred years old, many of them, 50 to a hundred years old, and the church opened up the idea of adding to our canon. That process of adding to our canon did not conclude until about 400. 370 years after the resurrection of Jesus, the church finally had what we now know as our Bible, Old Testament and New Testament. 
There were hundreds of books that contended for space in our text that we know as the New Testament. Our church went through many councils trying to decide which of those books, we call them 27 now, but there were many more that were being considered at that, at that time. The church went through a, lot of, a long process trying to ascertain which of these 27 books, and the church used its rule of faith or the apostolic doctrine to be the lens by which it assessed these books. There were three criteria. Does the book accord with our doctrine? See, we didn't build our doctrine out of these books. These books had to accord with our doctrine. Our doctrine was built from the teaching of Jesus, the message of the apostles, and their interpretation of the Old Testament canon. We had a rule of faith, and it was that that served as the lens. The other thing that we considered, the other criteria, was it apostolic? Was it written by an apostle or by someone who was with an apostle? And the third was antiquity. And this answers a question that a lot of you have. How did the church not put Origen, Irenaeus, Tertullian, Augustine, Anselm, Aquinas, Luther, or C.S. Lewis for that matter? How do books not get considered for the canon of Scripture? The church early on decided, and this is nowhere in Scripture itself implicitly, explicitly stated, but the church decided that they had to be written in antiquity. They had to be written in association chronologically with the experience of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. And the church finally closed the canon. This is the last thing I'll tell you. The church closed the canon in the 17th century. They formulated our full canon in the 4th century, in the 3rd and 4th century, settled it in the 5th, but they didn't close it till the 17th century at the council, 18-year council called the Council of Trent, that was initiated in response to all of our, us Protestants, our beloved Luther, because Luther in the Protestant Reformation in the 17th century said, we have not closed the canon, and it's good that we haven't closed the canon, because some of these books don't belong. Do you remember which book, number one, Luther said didn't belong in the canon? Which book was it? James, one of my favorite books. Anybody like James besides me? Coming from a Methodist background, we really like James. Faith without works is dead. That's a big holiness movement. Well, Luther, who all of us Protestants love, his big deal was the canon is wrong and we need to put James out and he gave he also talked about 2nd and 3rd John, Jude, Esther because of its no mention of God, Song of Solomon because it was PG-13, and the book of Revelation because it was too fanciful and of no practical use to the church. So this was Luther's idea to which the Catholic Church responded and said, no, 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 we're going to leave our books in and they closed the canon, so there's no ability to add to the canon today. Now, <clears throat> I want to draw this picture on the board because this is the picture that I want us to be left with. The rule of faith was incredibly important in the development of Scripture. But to the question of wherein lies authority, the church concluded from its earliest days that the authority of God is vested in the person of the Holy Spirit because Scripture itself 
has Jesus saying on the eve of his crucifixion, I have many things to tell you, but you cannot bear them now. But when the Holy Spirit comes, he will lead and guide you into all truth. It was the belief of the church from the earliest days per scripture that the Holy Spirit would guide the body of Christ, call the church, and the Holy Spirit, the church has concluded, does that primarily through four utilities or expressions. The one that us Protestants grew up with and perhaps are most endeared to is the voice of Scripture. The second voice that the rule of script, that Scripture itself depended upon to come into formation was the rule of faith or the oral tradition, the accumulated interpretive tradition of the saints through the ages of Scripture itself. Remember, what we call New Testament writings were not first written to be Scripture by the writers. They were doing commentary on the Scripture, which was the Old Testament. And that accumulates. And there is a, 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 a living community of the living and the dead who have built up a tradition of interpretation that we still are informed by. Luther and Wesley and Augustine still live. There's another voice through which God speaks, and that is reason. Isaiah 1.18, come now, let us reason together. We do not ask people in the Christian faith to check their brain in at the door and to come in and be completely um, driven by emotion and illogic. Reason. Um, reason is one way that we develop tradition through the interpretation of Scripture. We have to read text like, we have to read text like, if any man come after me, Luke 14, if any man come after me, let him hate his father, his mother, his sister, his brother, his wife, and his children. And we read that and we believe that Jesus has just told us the only way to be a Christian is to hate your entire family because that's what it said. But through the employment of reason and the broader context of Scripture and a leaning upon a tradition of accumulated interpretation, we blend those together and we understand that this is hyperbole and that Jesus was simply calling for a primary love of God and a secondary love of those around us. Even those two loves would be reconciled through the greater reading of Scripture. Reason. We've been, we've been destroying our Copernicuses and Galileos and Darwins and Einsteins for centuries trying to give heed to Scripture in the absence of reason when many of these voices of reason and Scripture are not in any way contradictory, but are clearly reconcilable if we will just give ourselves to the process. This is the Anglican triad of which the Anglicans have always said scripture is the longest leg of this three-legged stool. A fourth voice was added by Wesley and Wesley's quadrilateral, someone that I grew up on, and Wesley added to these voices the voice of experience. And this is what Phyllis is saying Phyllis is saying that we've done pretty well through the year with our philosophers and theologians. We've done pretty well giving a, at least a tacit, if not sincere, nod to the accumulation of wisdom over time, and we've always been a people of the book. But she reminds us that from the very beginning, the message of Jesus was not that we would make idols of tradition, reason, the mind, or the biblical experience, but Jesus promised us 
that we would live in the age of the Spirit when we as individuals, a mother brought up her daughter to me at the end of the first service, Kimberly Nelson, with her little girl Scarlett, and she said, what's all this mean for her? What all of this means for Scarlett and my daughter Nina is that as a Christian, well, let me just tell you what I wrote. The Christian church is a community of the living and the dead engaged in a continual and sacred conversation guided by the Holy Spirit utilizing reason, scripture, tradition, and experience. And our children are born into a faith and from their earliest days, our children are given the incredibly profound, incredibly scary, humbling, daunting commission to go back to their bedrooms and say, speak, Lord, thy servant heareth. The words of Hannah to her little boy, Samuel. We believe that God does not just employ professionals accumulated over time and a biblical text. We believe the message of Jesus is that he will baptize every human being with the direct experience of Almighty God and we will tell Nina, my Nina, and your child, we will tell them to say, speak, Lord, thy servant heareth. We will tell them that the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead doesn't just dwell in the Pope and doesn't just dwell in the Bible, but the spirit that raised Jesus from the dead dwells inside of them. And we will tell them to be open. And they will dream dreams and they will experience experiences. And they will see sunsets and they will hear from God. And we will tell them that they are not an island. We will tell them that me can be incredibly dangerous, but us is very safe. And we will tell them to bring their experiences back into the community of faith and to unite them with the community of faith. And we will share an authority that begins not with thou shalt, but we will share an authority that begins with once upon a time and a God who invites us into a journey and a friendship, a relationship, and I will not simply ask my daughter to memorize doctrines and theories that I've believed, but I will send her to her bedroom as Hannah did Samuel, saying, Speak, Lord, thy servant heareth. And the community of faith will be in a consistent, continual, and sacred conversation involving all of these voices. And if you try to make one of these the end-all, be-all are the premium voice of God, then you are taking them and demeaning them from appropriate holy tools and you are making them individual idols which limit the great voice of God. But if these humbly reconcile together, then through these voices we very well may find the ideas and the thoughts of God that we're looking for. Forgive me, we had less time in this service than the other, but I wanted to make this clear to you. Somebody asked me in the first service, Tanner Scott, one of the boys that works with our kids and our youth, he asked me, can God speak in this way? Can God speak authoritatively and effectively to someone who has no access to Scripture? See, we always go for this one first. This is the biggie, right? Even though it's not where we began, 
And it's not even the story that Scripture itself teaches. Scripture doesn't give that kind of idolic sense or idolatrous sense to Scripture. But we always go to Scripture, and Tanner said, can a person be communicated with effectively by God without Scripture? Well, I asked Tanner in response to the question, have you ever seen anybody who had this one without this one? Let that settle in for a minute. Have you ever seen anybody who had this one without this one be spoken to by God? Have you ever seen anybody who had this one without this one? The bottom line is, I think the scriptural story itself indicates quite clearly that you don't have to make an A plus in all of these areas for God to be speaking to you. But there are plenty of indications in our life empirically and in the story of scripture that tells us any way possible for God to communicate, God will communicate. And as a matter of fact, I believe the most profound way that God communicates is through the communication of experience. And that's why I really align with Phyllis Tickle and this age of the spirit and I appreciate more and more the Pentecostal upbringing, though I don't appreciate the extremes to which the Pentecostal movement took these ideas, and I don't impose speaking in tongues and dreams and all these uh, phenomenal experiences on people. I do think, Kev, all our simple people were trying to say is that you don't have to wait for the experts and you don't have to go to school, but that little child ambling into a vacation Bible school can engage God directly. And we should not put that down, Charles. We should not diminish that, but we should foment that and facilitate that. And we should never teach them to become a cult leader and go off imposing their experience on everybody else, which is some of what we did. But we should tell them to humbly back, come back to a community that is 2,000 years old and to submit their once upon a time and the narrative of their story to a broader narrative. And through these things, God will speak to us. Can you say amen? That's what Phyllis, I think, was saying to us. Um, I know it's time to go. One good, somebody, no pressure, somebody come up with a really great question response so I can at least tell the staff I did have a question and answer with the church. Anybody want to put a capstone on that? Oh, we got one over here. Thanks for being brave. This is just a question that I've always had, and maybe you could Maybe you could at least address it. Um, so we ultimately believe that, um, you know, that the, the New Testament and all of our scriptures were divinely orchestrated and that the Holy Spirit moved in these uh, apostles and, um, and in, in everyone that follows down with that, you know, for us mm -hmm. to come up with these books. So in Revelation, when it says, you know, when there's the curse of adding books, uh -huh. how was that brought to be, and how does that, you know, because we had the question last week that why aren't some of the other books, and why would we not add other books, and who, how did we come up with, you know, this yeah. curse? That's, that's, a, that's a great question. At the end of the book of Revelation, do you remember reading, whoever adds to the words of this book or takes away from the words of this book, let them be accursed? Well, there's a million-dollar question. Is that talking about all 66 books of the Bible? Is that talking about the canon of Scripture, or is the writer writing simply about the book of Revelation? Well, I would contend that the writer was writing just about the book of Revelation, that nobody should add to the words of that vision. 
Could the Holy Spirit have superintended that meaning? And when Revelation becomes the last book, I don't know how divine ordered this was, but when Revelation becomes the last book, could those words, whoever adds to or takes away, inform our position on all 66 books of the overall Bible? That's a bit of a stretch, but I think it could mean that. Interestingly, though, we have 5,700 manuscripts of the New Testament. Many of them, over 3,000 of them, contain the book of Revelation. Of these 5,700 manuscripts, old ancient manuscripts, extant manuscripts, beginning in the 11th century and going back, our earliest manuscripts in the first 500 years of the Christian church do not have those words, whoever it adds to or takes away. The manuscripts that come from the 6th, 7th, and 8th century include those words, whoever adds to or takes away. And I might add, those words came from manuscripts in the 6th, 7th, and 8th century when the church was purposefully trying to do good translation of the ancient text, and the church had to recognize that many groups of people holding many manuscripts of the same text, without a printing press and without a universalized edition, many people were gerrymandering the biblical text to fit their doctrine and their way of seeing things. We know that. Our clearest, most representative text of what we think were the original writings are the later ones because the church and the later ones did a lot of forensic examination to clean up the early revisions. And somewhere in that process, somebody was allowed to add words to the book of Revelation. And it is incredibly interesting that the words they added are these, whoever adds to or takes away from the words of this book, let them be accursed. And then there should have been an asterisk that said at the bottom, except for me. <laughs> Our book is a human book, and it is a divine book. And some of the battles we fought for inerrancy and complete divinity miss the point of what inspiration truly is. It is a beautiful book, but it never was intended to be an idol, and it's certainly not God, but it is, like our experiences, like our interpretation, like our reason, it is a medium through which God has communicated. And whereas Phyllis said, divorce, women, slavery, LGBT, these things have defied Scripture, because Scripture doesn't say the right things about them, I disagree, I disagree, I disagree. I'm more on the N.T. Wright side of things on this. I, I generally agree with Phyllis more than N.T. Wright, but on this, I agree with N.T. Wright. Scripture contains things that we have yet to understand. And I don't think we reverse Scripture on slavery. I think we finally read it right. I don't think we reverse scripture on divorce and women in ministry and women's roles in marriage. I think we finally read it right. You know why we read it right? Because our guide is not scripture. Our guide is God through the Holy Spirit utilizing scripture. And when we finally read it right, we now are a part of tradition. 
because somewhere down the road, somebody looked back and say it's in the 19th century that slavery was overturned. It was in the 20th century that we became more gracious and found the heart of God for divorcees. We are a part of tradition. Tradition isn't just long ago. Tradition is a continuing voice that is respected as God leads us and guides us into all truth. And all we believe as the Christian church is that that truth did not get fully understood at the end of the first century, but the Holy Spirit is still working in the church and in that Sunday school class, and God only knows the prophetic visions that will rise up in our children that will defy the logic of everything we've ever known, but unveil to us the fullness of God's spirit and heart for this world. Amen? That is our valuing and appreciation of Scripture as the Christian church, and even equal, not more, but equivalent to that is our undergirding belief that we can send our babies back to the nursery. And instead of saying, thou shalt, we can tell them to go find their once upon a time. And in the narrative scripture, we can say to them, Nina Kay, this is what your daddy believes. As a matter of fact, it's what I want you to believe. And as long as you're under my roof, it's what we're gonna do. But even more than that, lie down in that bed and say, speak, Lord, thy servant heareth, because you're never too young and you're never too old. That is a blessed truth, and to that we give ourselves. Thank you for bearing with me. We'll move on to some more practical matters next week, but I think this was good for us to cover uh, these things. Lord, thank you for our time together and for the voice of the people and especially the voice of the Holy Spirit, which speaks through the people. Thank you, Lord, for prophetic tradition. Thank you for bishops and apostolic fathers and apostles. But thank you, Lord, that ultimately you didn't send apostles to me. You sent the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Lord, for something bigger than a rule of faith, bigger than a book. Thank you, Lord, for an experience with God that every human can have. Thank you, Lord, that you don't send mixed messages and these voices don't contradict. Thank you for a community that we can bring the apparent contradictions and ultimately find only tensions that can be synthesized through the guiding of your spirit. I pray for Grace Point Church as well as the church overall. I pray for the patriarch and the pope and every preacher in between. Oh God, continue to lead us and guide us into all truth until we come into the full expression of your great kingdom. We pray these things humbly and thankfully in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And God's people said, amen. Mel, we need to move chairs for vacation Bible school. There, there's your practical service. All that holiness now translate into moving chairs for vacation Bible school. Which way do we move them? Okay, fellas. Ladies, we'll leave the first four rows in the middle. Everything else, let's help out Anna and the children's team and stack them against the wall. God bless you. You're dismissed.